So you may or may not have seen our movie for this week, The Book of Eli. Uh, frankly, we're not recommending the movie because it has some pretty uh, extensive violence and language. And uh, so that's up to you to choose whether or not to watch the movie. However, we do believe that the idea or the thought or the theme of the movie fits perfectly with what we're talking about today because the movie takes place in, in post-apocalyptic America. Um, uh, tragedy has happened, struck, and, and, and Eli is a kind of a last prophet sent on a last mission from God. He's told to travel west and told that uh, he should follow this highway of death and deliver this book uh, into a safe place, a safe location. And by the way, to keep the book out of hands that would want to destroy it. Uh, and then we learn as the movie progresses that the book is the last copy of the Bible. Now this book is quoted by Eli as he walks through the movie in different places. He talks about the fact of walking by faith and not by sight. And so you begin to see the question. He's looking for truth. He's looking for hope. He's wanting to spread that truth and that hope to others. But how do you do that? What's it all about? And of course, the answer is the word of God. <clears throat> now, Eli uses the Bible to answer the questions of the world of his day. And really, we want to do the same thing. We want to answer the questions of the world in our day. And we believe the best way to do that, the best way to point toward hope in our day is through the word of God. We're we too are looking for truth. We too are looking for hope. There's a lot of things in this world that would tend to make us away from or take us away from hope. But in reality, we believe that there is hope. We believe there is truth. Many are just searching for that. We're trying to find the search for the end of the world. That's where this particular series zeroes in. We're talking about big screen end of the world edition. And by the way, end of the world edition, we, there, there was no lack of movies in that genre, right? Why are there so many movies that talk about the end of the world? I believe in part it's because there is a lot of interest in this particular subject. We've been asked that question maybe more than any others throughout this pandemic as people have been wondering, scratching their head again, asking the age old question, is this the end? Is this the world coming to an end? And the second question, could it be today or tomorrow? Or is it going to be in 10 years or 20 years? Or is it going to be in a long, long time? Interestingly, there was a New York Post poll out recently that, that indicated that many Americans think it's going to end by 2050. I don't know where they get that idea from or that date from, but the truth is we're all in search of that truth. We're all wanting to know answers to that particular question. So that brings me to a bigger question right now, a huge question. When the truth is hard to find, who do you trust? Okay, think about that just a moment. If we're talking about the end of the world, think about how many people have different ideas and opinions. Each has his own chart or her own graph or their own theological stance or interpretation of this particular chapter we're looking at in the Bible or maybe in the book of Revelation. And because there are so many different interpretations and so many different ideas, how do we know the truth? And how do we know who we can trust? Well, we're going to take the time to find this thought or to define this thought. We believe we can trust the word of God. 
We can trust the Word of God. Now, I know that some of you listening are still trying to decide about that. You're still trying to decide, is the Bible just an ancient manuscript, or is it what Eddie's talking about, that it could be the Word of God? I want to tell you that in my years of experience, I have found that I can trust my Bible. It's never let me down, and the words of Jesus have never in my lifetime, to me, been proven anything but true. And so I believe I can trust him and what he says about the end of the world. And that is in part why we found ourselves in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. It's what we call the Olivet Discourse. I know it's a rather strange name, but I want you to be able to recognize that. Two reasons it's called that. One, because it is a discourse or a teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples. It's why we're there. We're there because they asked the question of him, uh, tell us about the end of the world. We wanna, we're interested in when it will be and what that's going to look like. And he's going to address that in this teaching. Secondly, it happened on the Mount of Olives, thus the Olivet teaching. A discourse. It's a teaching. Maybe we could call it a sermon, however you're comfortable with it. But it is Jesus talking about the end of the world. Now, I think that's our best source. I think that's the place we can trust. So let's take a look at that. If you have your Bible, you might want to open it up to Matthew's gospel, Matthew's account. Now, interestingly, Matthew is not the only eyewitness to this discourse. It's also recorded in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel. We call those the synoptic gospels. They are similar. They, 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 are, they are, are, are synonymous almost, if you will. And, and here's the thing. What we have here is three eyewitness accounts of what Jesus taught there on the Mount of Olives that day. Now, that's pretty significant. It's not that this book was written by somebody hundreds of years later or thousands of years later who was recalling or a folklore that had been told down. We have the words of three eyewitnesses who heard with their own ears what Jesus taught on the Mount of Olives. Many believe it was they, or some of them at least, that asked him the questions that prompted this teaching. And so I'm anxious to hear what they have to say and see what they wanted to talk about. Now, you'll recall that we saw last week, or if you weren't there, you can catch that on our website, or you can go back and read for yourself. The opening of chapter 24 sets the context. Jesus had been in Jerusalem visiting the temple. He then left the temple, and as was his custom, decided to spend the night outside of the city. On his way, likely to Bethany, he stopped off at the Mount of Olives. And there at the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him and said, Hey, Master, Rabbi, we, we got a question for you. When we were in town, you talked about the destruction of the temple. You talked about not one stone being left on another. Can we talk about that a little bit more? Can you tell us a little bit more about this end? You're saying that the end of the world as we know it is a reality. So tell us. When's it going to happen and what's it going to look like? And are there any signs that will help us or lead us to a better understanding of that? Well, let's take a look at what he said. And I think you'll begin to understand why it is that this is intriguing to our thoughts and to some even troubling. Matthew 24, we're going to pick up reading with verse number four and, and read through about verse. Uh, well, we'll follow along. Here's what he says. Jesus replied to them, 
watch out that no one deceive you. And I know that was in last week's text, but I wanted to include that because we need to understand that Jesus is implying immediately that there's going to be a whole lot of people with a whole lot of different ideas about this. And some are going to intentionally deceive. Some, I'm convinced, are going to really unintentionally still deceive. But he said, watch out. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All those events are the beginning of labor pains. Now, let's stop there just for a moment. Because I want to make a statement that might be a little bit surprising to you and might uh, even shock you a little bit. But I want to say this. The interesting thing to me is I'm convinced that all of these things have already happened. <laughs> and yeah, all of these things have already happened. Now, I, I, you say, well, how can that be, Pastor Eddie? I thought that these were talking about the end of time. Notice verse 8 very carefully. He said, all these events are the beginning of labor pains. What we sometimes assume is in the future is at least in part accomplished in the past. Now, let me talk about that just a moment because I think it's important not only for today's text, but also for the coming weeks as we finish out this this discourse, this teaching. We need to remember, last week we talked a little bit about the possibility of a dual um, a fulfillment of prophecy. That is, that prophecy can, can always have or often have a dual fulfillment, one in the immediate time and one yet still out there in the future. Here's a perfect example of that. Most agree that Jesus is describing the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. When you read these verses, it becomes very clear if you follow history that Jesus was telling them something that was about to happen and we having hindsight on it realize, hey, it really did happen. Jesus was predicting that Jerusalem was going to fall, that the temple was going to be destroyed, and that a time of literal hell on earth was about to be had by these Jewish people. Now, again, you don't have to trust the Bible on this one. Trust history books. Read history books. Read the archaeologists. Read the historians. Read the people who were eyewitnesses, and they all agree this actually happened. In 70 AD, the Roman general Titus marched on Jerusalem, laid siege to the city, and eventually broke down the walls and into the city, destroyed the temple. And there, the Jewish people became uh, uh, slaves, if you will, to the Romans, those who at least lived through the torture. They were dark days and difficult days. And all of these things that Jesus had predicted that we just read actually happened already. But now here's where the dual fulfillment comes in. We have to understand something. This is talking about much more than just what happened in 70 AD, or at least I believe so. I think that because of what occurs later. Now, at the risk of getting ahead of myself, because again, we'll look at the chapters later on, I want to skip all the way down toward the end of the chapter, toward the end of the sermon, and read some words that Jesus said down in verse 29, and I think you'll see what I'm talking about. He says, 
immediately after the distress, some versions read tribulation or trouble, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, frankly, that's something the world has not yet seen. That's something that we have not any record of happening. That's something that we who are believers, we who are the church, are looking forward to. Now, how can it be, Eddie, that we're talking about something that actually happened in 70 AD and yet something that's yet to happen in the future. I think it is this idea of the dual fulfillment of prophecy. The destruction of Jerusalem was a type of the great tribulation that is yet to come. Uh, the tribulation is an anti-type, if you will. There, there, it's talking about, yes, the tribulation that's coming from Titus, but also a time of great trouble and distress and tribulation that's coming just before Jesus comes again. You may recall, you may not know it. If not, you can check it out in Matthew's gospel. You can read about it in Acts chapter 1, that Jesus, when he was finished with his earthly ministry, after his resurrection, ascended back into heaven. And, and the scripture tells us that he told them, I'm coming again. And as he ascended into heaven, the angels that were there said, "What well, you men of Galilee, you're gazing at this. Don't you know this same Jesus that was taken away from you will come again in like manner. And now we see that Jesus himself had predicted he's coming in the clouds. But before that time, these days of distress, these days of trouble, better known to some people as the great tribulation, is still particularly going to happen. Now, why is this dual prophecy uh, interpretation or a dual prophecy fulfillment so important? I think it's important on several levels. First of all, many early Christians did not understand the Olivet prophecy was dual, and they fully expected Christ to return immediately after the destruction of Jerusalem. They were thinking, okay, this time of trouble he's talking about has come. We're in the middle of it. Roman persecution is after us. Surely, at the end of this time, at the time of this destruction, this trouble, the destruction of this temple, he's coming again. But he didn't. He didn't. As a matter of fact, when he failed to appear, some were disappointed. Others were illusioned. Some lost their faith and even stopped believing the disappointment was a major factor, I believe, in causing the church to fall into a, a time of apostasy. And they were trying to figure it out. They thought that it was coming within their lifetime. We're very similar. We understand that, don't we? Because those of us who are older and have been following these prophecies for a while have also seen times and days when we thought, surely this is it. This is the time that Jesus spoke about. Surely he's coming. Surely he's coming within our lifetime. And many people that I know who really believed he was coming in their lifetime have since gone to heaven and he didn't come in their lifetime. Frankly, I believe he's coming in my lifetime. I always have. I'm still convinced, but he may not. This dual prophecy is important. The second reason this is important is because many of the Jews fail to understand this idea of dual prophetic fulfillment. Therefore, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah 
because of that very fact. Well, Messiah didn't come after this occurrence of the Romans, and, and, and they missed that. And you know what? It occurred to me, without an understanding of dual fulfillment, no wonder the apostles, his followers, no wonder they had a hard time grasping the idea of a coming kingdom. No wonder they had a hard time dispelling from their thoughts the idea of an earthly kingdom. You see, if they, if they believed their prophecies of their prophets... Their prophets described a time when the king would set up and establish a throne on earth. They described a time when the king, the Messiah, would indeed reign from Jerusalem. We see that as a dual fulfillment or as a prophetic fulfillment of the, what we call the millennial time, the millennial reign, or a reign of Christ in the future. They had a hard time seeing that. And so they couldn't get in their minds the fact that, wait a minute, we've got to have this kingdom set up. Uh, does that make sense to you? It really does to me. And it really kind of changes my thoughts about the disciples. At times I've thought, well, you know what? They sure were selfish and power hungry to just not get over the fact that, that this coming kingdom was going to be theirs to enjoy in Jerusalem. See, wait a minute. Maybe that's not it at all. Maybe they just didn't understand that that fulfillment of that prophecy was yet to come. They didn't listen to Jesus really closely one day when he was reading from the book of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah in, the, tabernacle, in the, the, the synagogue in his own town. They didn't listen very well because when he, read the scribe, when he read the scroll of Isaiah, he stopped before the end time part kicks in. Well, enough of that. Can't get bogged down there, but I do find it very, very interesting. Here's what I believe we need to see for today. We need to see for today the truth of verse 8. Verse 8, he said, all these events are the beginning of labor pains. The beginning. In a very real sense, I think he's saying that when these th events occurred in AD 70, it was the beginning of the end. Now, I know that was almost 2,000 years ago, but when we think of the scope of, of time, when we think of the scope of time in general, that's really just a short period of time. It is a beginning of birth pangs. The thought there, the key thought is that this was the start, but there was more to come. And then I think it's interesting that he uses the, the illustration, if you will, of birth pains, right? Birth pains. Well, what do we know about birth pains? Well, I've never experienced them personally, but I have experienced them with my wife and as she experienced those birth pains. And you know about that and you know how it happens, right? Interestingly, birth pains come about in several ways. Labor pains, I should say. Labor pains come how? First of all, they come randomly right? They, they just come randomly. Everything is, is, is okay. And then here comes a contraction. And with that contraction comes pain. Um, secondly, they come for a while and then they're gone, right? It comes random. It lasts for a period of time and, and then they're gone. And then it comes again and they're gone. You see, they, they, we, in fact, what? That's how we know when the labor, when the baby's getting closer because those pains get closer and closer to coming. And two, by the way, I'm told, again, never experienced it. I'm that they tend to amp up as the baby gets closer. When the birth comes closer, when the time of the birth gets closer, the contractions come more often and they come with greater intensity and greater power. Now, that makes perfect sense to me because as Jesus described these things that have already happened, we understand, hey, we've seen that. And we've seen them happen at random times throughout the last 2,000 years. 
We've seen them be very random, and we've seen them to be very painful times. And as these random painful times occur, they come and then they go. And they come and then they go. And they come and then they go. But guess what? Every time they come again, they are amped up a little bit more. So Jesus is saying, these things that you've seen already, these things that you saw when the Romans invaded your country, and these things that you being me and you have seen over the past history of the last few years, guess what? They are the beginning of birth pains. But then he adds some more detail. He goes on, we, we, I, I stopped on purpose where I stopped, but I want to read on a little further now because he gives us some very clear signs. Now he's going to address the second part of their question, which is, what's this going to look like? Give us some specifics. And, and he begins to talk about some of them beginning in verse five. And, and I want to kind of categorize these. I, I, I don't have time. I wish I did. I don't have time to comment on each one. But I want to throw it out there for you so you can then maybe think it through or look at it. The first thing he mentions is false hope. He says, one of the signs that the end is coming is false hope. He says it in verse 5. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. In other words, many are going to come saying, I'm the Messiah. Or better put, I'm the Savior. I'm the one that's going to save the world. And so I think one of the things that we see as the end of time approaches are people looking for hope and willing to put their hope anyway. They're looking for truth. They just don't know who to trust. And so they put their trust in someone, and then that someone quickly lets them down. They put their trust in something. Where are you looking for hope? What are you looking to for hope? Are you placing your hope in some Bible teacher? Be careful. Be careful. We're all just men. Not the Bible teacher. Put your trust in the Bible, its word. Are you placing your trust in a political party, a political person, a political platform? Be careful because the political platform, the political party is not going to save our world, not going to save our country. Are you placing your hope in a gut feeling or an idea? I I talked to some people and and we talked about the end of time. I asked about your ideas about the end of the world. It's amazing how many people say, I just got a gut feeling or I've got an idea or a thought. No rhyme or reason to that. What are you putting your trust in? When the truth is hard to find, who do you trust? When you're looking for real hope, who do you trust? The book that Eli was protecting the Bible. I think that's extremely important to understand. So first we have this false hope. The second theme that he talks about is this national unrest. He says in verse six and in verse seven, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. Now you should know that has already been the case, right? We know that we are constantly hearing talk about war, that it's coming or we're seeing them. See that you are not alarmed because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. And then he says, for nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So Jesus says, as the last day approaches, a part of the labor pains that we feel from from our society and from the world around us is is, is corruption, a world around us is corrupt, corruption in government, corruption in politics, corruption in finance, corruption in banking, corruption in every areas of our life, civil unrest. Isn't it interesting that he mentions that right now when we see that in our own country, not only corruption, but also a civil unrest. And he talks about a mistrust 
in government and government leaders. No wonder there's always talk of wars and rumors of wars. And every time these wars come about, we wonder. I've heard this question so many times. So is this the final war? <laughs> is this World War III? Is this Armageddon? The final word, that's another whole word for another whole time. And then he talks about another thing, another theme, physical calamities. So very important. He says in verse number seven, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. I think he's talking here about natural disasters. I think he's talking about the natural disasters that happen in different places in the world. Now, see, sometimes we just zero in on our own little space and we forget that while we may not be experiencing a natural, a natural disaster right now, somebody is. Somebody is, whether it's in Africa or, or whether it's in Asia whether it's in the western part of the U.S. or the northeastern part of the U.S., we have these different places. But I'm telling you, watch the news. All around us, natural disasters come every day. Pestilences, the locust even now that's troubling Africa. We think about that. Uh, we think about pandemics, right? We're in the middle of a pandemic. This pandemic happens to be worldwide. And so immediately we begin to think of Jesus's words and we begin to think, is this the end? He also mentions earthquakes. And, and, and by the way, while we in North Central Florida don't deal with a whole lot with earthquakes, guess what? We deal with something else called hurricanes, Right? We, we do deal with tornadoes. We do deal with other natural um, disasters that take place that can, be, um, can, that can be extremely hurtful and harmful to multitudes of people. Those of you friends of ours who are listening in the Bahamas, still a year later, and some of you are still waiting for power uh, from a devastating storm that, that killed many of your people. And it saddens us. And we think as we look at these natural pestilences and these natural issues, are, is this the end? And then he talks about something else that may surprise you. He talks about a, following, a falling away from faith. He tells us that many will fall. Verse 9 begins this section. Look what he says. He says, then they, initially talking about the Romans, but I think again will happen later then they will hand you over to be persecuted. That's a mild, that's taking it like, we, what do we know about the Romans? We know that the Romans would feed the Christians to lions. We, we know that how they were persecuted, drugged from their houses, from their families, and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. You know what? That was surprising to us at one point, but now we can believe that, can't we? Christians in places around the world are hated because of his name. So look at what he says. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Wow. Now Jesus begins to talk about a falling away from the faith. Because sometimes... Sometimes under the stress and the issues of pressures of tribulation and turbulation and because of the struggles of persecution, many, he says, will begin to fall away, begin to weed out. We'll, we'll begin to see the difference in true faith and false faith. We'll begin to see the, the difference in the ones who are actually following Christ and which are the ones who are following a religion. 
many will begin to fall away, a falling away of faith. So he warns of this persecution that's coming. But then it ends on a very good note. It ends on a very positive note. One thing about the, the, the book of Eli, it ends on a very good note. Here's a good note it ends on. Look at verse 14. He talks about the spread of the gospel. Now, he says finally, this good news, that's the gospel, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus says, with all the persecution and all the tribulation and all the trouble that's going to happen, it will not stop the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing to me how our enemy, Satan, our great enemy, Satan, would try to snuff out the gospel. He's tried ever since back in, in the first century. He's tried. He's tried to stop it before then. He's always tried to, if I can just persecute God's people, they'll stop talking about this story. The Romans thought it. Other, other generations, other kingdoms have thought it. Another kingdom yet will think it in the end. But Jesus says, actually, you're just pulling, pouring fuel to the fire. And the gospel of the kingdom is going to spread into all the world. I want to stop right there. And that's kind of where I want to draw this thing to an end. I want us to think about what a great, great thought that is. That through all of this, the ending is that the gospel is spread even more. Well, that shouldn't surprise us. Really think back to our birth pains. Isn't it incredible that all, although birth pains are intense and, and, and sometimes intolerable, and even though they get extremely hard to deal with and they get amped up and, and the pressure comes greater and greater and greater, but guess what? The result of that is the birth of a beautiful, beautiful baby. I've been amazed for years as I've watched it and I've heard ladies talk about, I've heard mothers talk about the birth pains and how difficult the, the, the labor process is. But then it's amazing how all of that is wiped away the moment that little baby is placed in the mama's arms, suddenly forgotten. All we can think about is the beauty of the baby. And I think it helps us to understand that yes, there's trouble coming, Yes, part of the end is dealing with this idea of trouble and tribulation, but in the end, the gospel is furthered. I think it's very important to understand that. So what is the truth of the gospel? The truth of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, and was raised. Very important. Let me give you this thought, and then I'm going to give you a takeaway, and I'm done. Here's the thing. Many fear the future because of judgment of God. They think of the end, and with the end, they think about the judgment of God. And well, we should, because as we read about the end, we do see the wrath of God poured out upon a sinful world, upon sinful man. But here's the good news. For the child of God, just like we said of the events earlier in the Scripture, for the child of God, that pouring out of the wrath of God has already happened. It's already happened. Now, for the unbeliever, it's yet to come somewhere in the future. But for you, if you're a follower of Christ, that pouring out of the wrath of God has already happened. So where do you see it, Eddie? You see it on a lonely hill we call Golgotha. We call Calvary. You see it on a hill where Jesus lies down 
and allows Roman soldiers to drive pegs into his hands and into his feet and a thorny crown to pierce his brow and the whips of the Roman soldier to pierce his skin and his body. You see his blood running down his brow and down his body mingled and broken. And you see him there saying, it's finished. The work of redemption is done. I often wondered, why did God have to do it that way? If God wanted to save us, why have his only son go through such agony? And then I came to realize it is because the wrath of God must be poured out upon sin. But Jesus is saying, you can already have that. And on the cross, Jesus took our wrath. The wrath of God poured upon our sins on him. The prophet Isaiah said it this way. He said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, Yahweh, God, has laid on him, Jesus, the sin of us all. And there God poured out his wrath on my sins. But Jesus took the wrath for me. So when I was only nine years old, and I trusted the gospel, I heard the gospel, I believed the gospel, and I committed my life to Jesus Christ. At that moment, the wrath of God was poured out on my sins at the cross, and it was taken care of. So there is no judgment of Eddie in the future. That's right. That's what Paul said to the Romans. He said, there is therefore now no condemnation no judgment to those who are in Christ Jesus. Not because of who I am. I'm nobody special. Not because of what I've done. I've not done anything special. But because the wrath of God for my sins were poured out on Christ. Now the good news I have for you today is that same offer comes to you. That same offer is made to you today. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how dark your life is. The same offer is to you. Jesus reaches out his hand and says, I'm ready to pay the price for your sin. I'm ready to place, take care of your sin debt. I'm ready to have the wrath of God. <laughs> I've covered that 2,000 years ago for you. I'm ready to prepare you to face anything, including the end and eternity. But you've got to trust me you got to trust me. That's our takeaway. When you find the truth, you have to trust it. I've told you the truth this morning. More importantly, God's word has told you the truth. Now you've got to trust it. Pray with me, would you? Heavenly Father, thank you for the moment that you've given us today to explore the truth of your word. I pray, oh God, that you would speak to hearts of people who are listening or watching, people who are sitting in front of a tablet or their phone or a computer screen or their TV, someone listening through a podcast, God, would you speak to every heart right now and ensure them of your invitation to come, to come to you for forgiveness and the pardon of their sins. Now, let me just say this in closing. Right now, if you'd be willing to pray and invite Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, maybe it's time for you to say, God, I'm tired of worrying about this. God, I'm, I'm tired of trying to be concerned or try to get ready for any wrath that's to come. What he just said makes sense. And I want to trust you. 
I, I want to turn away from my sin and place my faith in you and your work there on the cross. Right now, you can ask Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord. And I'm telling you, right now, wherever you're at, your, your car, your home, your den, outside in a field, doesn't matter. God will hear you. And I hope you'll let us know about that. We would love to just be able to celebrate that with you. There's a place actually on our website where you can go to and you can just check. Hey, yeah, I've asked Jesus into my heart and into my life. Or maybe you need someone to talk to further. There's a place there you can check to, to pray, have someone pray with you. Someone is waiting right now to pray with you. And you can just check. It'll take you into a private chat room and it'll just be between you and the person you're praying for. Or you know what? Maybe you need to have more information. Maybe you'd like for us to talk to you about more. We'll be glad to talk that. Just find a connection card on our website and, and contact us. We'd be happy to share more with you. Until then, we're praying for you and looking forward to next week's third message.